Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. Of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I am Jen Hansen, and sitting across from me on this very comfy floor in our apartment is Miss Charlotte Martinez. So if our audio sounds a little strange, it's not my fault and it's not Charlotte's fault, it's our neighbor's fault because they're loud. I don't understand because it's it's a lot of banging noises. Footsteps don't do that. So whatever they're doing is like thumping or moving or all the time. Anyway, otherwise, it's a great day. Great. It's a great space. Beautiful. It's only like 900 degrees out right now. We have air conditioning. We have uh, air conditioning. We're it's very, very positive. Blessed to have air conditioning. Anyway, <laughs> last week we went over sort of the background and everything around a Wrinkle in Time, both the book and the two movies, the, I almost called it live action, the full, I'm going to call it the feature, and the TV movie. So it was one in 2018, 18. and one in 19, no, it was 2000. We call it, yeah, we call it the 90s version, because it feels very 90s, but it was 2003. 2003, yeah, yeah. well, it's 90s, yeah. So today, we're going to talk about more of the plot, and the story, and the characters, and... Do a little comparing and contrasting. And then we're going to contemplate the existence of the universe. But that takes, what, like two minutes? Yeah, I already did that. (laughs) It's fine. Everything's fine. We're sinking into a dark chasm. Everything's fine. (laughs) This is a very appropriate book to talk about darkness and light. Indeed. We are going to talk about the characters first and foremost and probably talk around them as well. So here's a bit of a summary of the story. If you've never read the book or watched the movies, our hero, 13-year-old Meg Murray, is an above-average intelligent child, but with many social and personal insecurities. Her parents are both scientists. She has twin brothers who don't do much, and an eight-year-old younger brother named Charles Wallace, who we discover has the intellectual and telepathic potential to fight off a cosmic darkness. When she was younger, Meg's father successfully traveled through space and time by using a method called tessering, the effect of which is like wrinkling space-time so you appear at point B instantly. But in doing so, Meg's father was trapped by the cosmic darkness on a planet, Kamazots, that is controlled by a telepathic being known as the It. So now years later, three cosmic guides called Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch appeared to Meg and Charles Wallace, calling them to help free their father. The guides explained that because they were and are stars, and also called soldiers of the light, they cannot confront it by themselves. But if the children are determined to bring their father home, their love and their determination can defy the temptations of that darkness. 
Kelvin O'Keefe, a friend of Meg's, accompanies them on their quest and on their journey. You also need to know that the first time they test her, the process is somewhat painful for Meg. And it's implied that that's because she's unconfident and unsure of herself. But throughout the story, we see that every time she improves on herself and her identity, the testering becomes less painful. So once the children arrive on Kamazots, the guides leave them with some advice, which is not to separate. The planet itself is run like a socialist community, no individuation, a headquarters full of complacent citizens, and within that headquarters is a man with red eyes who encompasses the energy of the it. And when they confront him, the children immediately are being tempted by him into the dark side. Charles Wallace, who this whole time is much too confident in himself, is taken in by the it. And though Meg is reunited with her father, he is too weak to save Charles Wallace. So Meg's father decides to test her himself, Meg, and Calvin to a nearby planet in order to sort of gather themselves and decide what to do next. Though injured from testering and extremely disappointed in her father, Meg realizes that she must be the one to save Charles Wallace because she knows him best. And she realizes her love for him supersedes any of her insecurities. So testering back to the planet, Meg confronts the it again this time summoning the love others have for her and the love she has for Charles Wallace. Now with her confidence grown and identity solidified, the it cannot hold Charles Wallace. The darkness is defeated. The cosmic guides congratulate Meg, thanking her and her family for being soldiers of the light. Um, and then they all test her back home, happily ever after the end. So let's jump into it. There's like three versions of Meg. The book, the 90s version, and the 2018 version. Yeah. So what did you think starting with the book, Ugh. Meg? <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to be your first word. <laughs> <sighs> it's not even her. It's I don't want to blame Meg because everyone around her is shitty to her. And I feel like she internalized all of it as opposed to like doing something about it. But it didn't feel like... Langle did that on purpose like I didn't feel like she was like highlighting that and being like see what girls do see how this is not necessary like it didn't feel like that it felt like this was written in the 60s and you're probably right I mean you're probably right about feeling wrong about things yeah as soon as because it's a it's a third person close perspective it's not with I I did this I did that but we're hearing her thoughts, her observations, everything is from her perspective. We never wander from her view of things. And it did feel, as soon as you start reading it, it, it kind of does feel like the 60s in a strange way. Meaning, yeah, these are thoughts from a insecure 12-year-old where everybody's sort of overshadowing her, telling her how to feel, what to think. Um, minus her mom, actually. Her mom's a little out there and kind of <laughs> indifferent, but I kind of like that they didn't make her an overbearing mother or true anything weird like that. If anything, she was a good support for her. Yeah, because you we're used to like the sorceress mother yeah. archetype, right? Exactly, yeah. stifling or maybe not present at all. In yeah. this case, it was it was pretty good, but the mom's hardly in it, so right. Didn't, <laughs> she didn't, didn't have a chance help. to be horrible. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> she wasn't maybe, in it enough. That's the reason. Otherwise, there's a lot of male figures around her, right? We have Calvin, we have Charles Wallace, brother, and her father, and she has two twins that are never in the story, so we don't care about them. Still, I don't understand, right? But you told me, didn't you tell me that she, like, had twin siblings? Langle based it, yeah, on her actual family. 
That's the worst reason to include a character in your book. <laughs> like you dedicate it to somebody. You don't add in characters that do absolutely nothing and who are just annoying. I was so glad that they got rid of it in the 2018 version. It just slows them down. There's no reason to have them there. Other than to say like, there are some normal kids in this family. Otherwise, Charles Wallace and Meg are odd. I would rather just be with them, right? Yeah, I think it's fine to have odd kids. I could do with less normal. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I agree that it wasn't Meg's fault. And in the times we were in her head, I actually felt the most comfortable, not comfortable, obviously. <laughs> I felt the most relatability when it was in her head, when she was making decisions, when she was feeling scared, because these other characters around her are sort of unrealistic. Mm-hmm. So to be in a 12-year-old's head who actually fears, feels things, that feels real to me. So maybe those were the parts where I felt the most grounded. I wrote like, I mean, I had a lot of trouble with the book, as you know. So I wrote that she was really annoying and whiny and unlikable. (laughs) Those were my notes. Yeah. And I got mad at myself for being mad at that because I'm like, this is why people don't want female protagonists because they make them whiny and unlikable. They don't do that with the male protagonists of the same age in the same genre. It's not like Lingle doesn't have faults for the other characters. We get to see that Calvin has problems and Charles has problems, but they don't highlight them if anything calvin's being all like yeah basketball player taking control of things like whatever oh, God, that being, was so gross yeah it's being the boy teenager yeah. in the 60s that's all very predictable but we're not seeing any vulnerabilities there around calvin or around charles wallace who's an eight-year-old kid who should have some vulnerabilities or anybody like telling them they're wrong to their face exactly like they do that multiple times to meg and i'm like Jesus, you need to like find another fam. Go off with Mrs. What's It because like this is not your place. Yeah, sometimes even the Mrs. W's <laughs> tell her weird things they that do. they don't tell Charles. And I'm like, well, Charles is eight years old. You can tell him not to do something. He's a kid. Well, so is Meg, but she's older. So right. why is everybody kind of jumping on Meg? <sighs> but you're right. That's the reality of the 60s. And I think that's not probably not even that much Lingle's fault either. It's just her time yeah i guess that makes sense do you know how old she was when she wrote this no idea i thought she was kind of into her career at that point anyway so you know it's really the mentality or the mindset of the 50s even or oh, the yeah. 40s and she had her own kids at the time her yeah husband and like so. her influences were even older than the 60s that's a good point this was probably even progressive for her Jesus Christ. <laughs> Let's count how many times they say that in this episode. All right. <laughs> but that aside, mm-hmm. we can see her sort of improve on these other versions, right? What did you think of, let's say, the TV version? Night and day, my friend. Yeah. Night and day. I tried to get into the book and I was having a lot of trouble and then I just like abandoned it. Every time I tried to read it, I fell asleep, which is not a good sign because usually I don't fall asleep to reading. And then we watched the TV version, and I was like, oh, I like everybody now. I mean, the main people. I like what's happening. I can get back into the book now because I have, like, something positive to focus on from the TV film. And a lot of that had to do with Mick. Now why? You tell me. Oh, really? Oh. (laughs) Whoever selected this actor, first of all, I think it was a brilliant choice because I don't know how she did it, but she was both confident and insecure, likable, and not like dislikable, but we would be frustrated when she was frustrated. And I don't know, everything she did was just so believable. Yeah. And the fact that she wore 90s clothes and didn't look too pretty and and like wasn't, you know, she she would look normal 
the yeah. completely normal, which is very relatable. Yeah. Was that your first impression? Definitely. Yeah. Like, I, I could definitely see myself in that position. And she engaged with the world in a way that was much more... I'm trying to say she was less whiny. <laughs> exactly. But she just kind of, like, took things as they came. And like you said, she, like, had this confidence, confidence. <laughs> while also being insecure, like, in her own skin, which that's what I would want from this age group for this book yes, and this story. Exactly. And maybe she was tougher than the book version, too. Every time somebody did want to try putting her down, it's not like she didn't. I could see that the character internalized it. But she didn't turn it into a whiny episode. She yeah. had this tough face that didn't deter from the story. You know what I yeah. mean? I think that was helpful too. And she felt like a, I don't have siblings, but I feel like she was more of a big sister. Yeah. In that version. She reacted like a big sister would in many situations, even in the book that didn't happen. And then we have Meg from the newest movie. Her name is Meg. <laughs> yes. All three did call her Meg, which they, is yes. good. <laughs> What did you think of her in that story? Again, I think the casting was really well done for different reasons. Mm. This one, because of this version, it's not an agenda or anything, but this version did represent some diversity, and that's great. Meg and her mother are both black. Charles Wallace is adopted in this version, so he looks a little different. Pacific Islander? or I don't even know. Couldn't tell. But you can, you know, with those labels, maybe you can yeah. kind of envision what that looks like. But super cute kid. I mean, everybody is just great and well-casted, I thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a little, I don't know. I don't know what to call it. It's not like <laughs> whiny or anything, but there was more progress to be made as far as confidence in this character, in this version. And sometimes that was distracting, unfortunately. But it made for really great drama i thought near the end i thought this actor was just like on it as far as very real very emotional reactions and yeah. that was even better than the 90s version i thought like i was literally crying sometimes yeah. watching this girl act yeah um so i think that's effective what did you think i agree it would have been interesting to take the story from the tv version and put meg from the 2018 version into that story I think in an ideal world, that's what would have happened. And the book can do whatever it wants. Right. Um, <laughs> it was difficult because in the 2018 version, the story is so different in some ways that, I don't know, it just felt a little out of place. And I think it would have been really interesting to have that Meg in the, not only in the actual storyline, but like the improved storyline yes. from the TV movie. Exactly. We even talked about that, right? What happens if we merged what the new one was doing into right. this TV version, even though the TV version was pretty spot on. It was. But we like the diversity. We yeah. actually enjoyed that part. Yeah. But if the story wasn't so different, I feel like it would have been more effective, right? Yeah, I think so. But the TV movie was like four hours, right? Because it was a TV special. Yeah. So it kind of made sense that, you know, they wouldn't be able to do everything in the new version because it was a feature. But that doesn't mean that they could have stuck to it a little bit better, yeah, I agree. Again, not not the actor's fault and not the character's fault. Just the writers. Just you know. the writers. <laughs> it's all the writers' fault. <laughs> Sorry. We don't like writers. <laughs> writers suck. <laughs> no, please keep writing writers. We're, we're sorry. It's a work in progress, you know? Yeah. Can I read um, 
It's from the book, but it's my favorite line of Meg's just because I think this sums up the energy of her character. Cool. Maybe I don't like being different, but I don't want to be like everybody else either. Was that the whole thing? That was the whole thing. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to continue. <laughs> no, that's it. But just when I read it, I was like, yeah, that's, I feel like every one of us feels that way. It's not like we want to be so different, but we don't want to be like anybody else. Yeah, either. totally. That, I think that's a great synopsis of many 13-year-olds. Yeah. There are things that we want to talk about, I think, that are the dynamics of the different characters. So if, if we can just kind of go over the characters first, then we can kind of talk about how they're working together in these different instances. So the others, the second main character, I guess you could say, is Charles Wallace, which is the younger Meg's younger brother. Charlotte, <laughs> take it away. I would categorize him as the child genius archetype. I don't even know if that's what it's called. It's the same, it's sort of the same as child prodigy. There's a child who acts very much like a child, except that they have some sort of ability or talent that's supernatural, superhuman, or magical in some way. Sometimes it's just being super intelligent right away or being good at something right away, right? Bobby Fischer. Yeah. In this case, it's more superhuman because we're talking about cosmic wars between good and evil, light and dark, and it's insinuated by the three guides, the three Mrs. W's Mm -hmm. that Charles Wallace possesses not only super intelligence, but telepathy, which is a, I guess it's an ability of people like the Mrs. W's. So Mm -hmm. whatever it is, is a cosmic energy. And there's hints of that in the way he talks, the things he does. Um, And again, it's an eight-year-old kid. So when you hear an eight-year-old kid talking about how he can hear people's thoughts or understand people without even knowing them, it could be a little freaky. But in this case, I thought it was kind of cool. I always like this archetype because I feel like there's a lot of potential of wisdom coming from an innocent child because they have this worldly ability coming from a child's brain. And I think that's sort of an exciting contradiction. But for, I mean, you know, there's versions of Charles Wallace that I like better, but in the book, he's sort of arrogant about it, which is too bad because I think he didn't have to be so arrogant. I think he could have been more childlike while Mm. still exhibiting these supernatural talents and abilities. Which is what I didn't like about the 2018 version of him is that he's not like a little kid. He's not insecure enough. Being that age and not being good at being social, I need him to be affected and maybe even not, uh, you know, maybe even afraid to engage. And there was no change for Charles Wallace. That's what it was. Oh my gosh. How did I not see that? We talked about this, I thought. Well, we, no, but you're right. I mean, in the 2018 version, there was no change. You're right. I I was talking about a very specific moment where he sort of Mm. fails his own test in the 2018 version. But you're right. It's the whole thing. It's the whole movie that he's sort of failing this character test. And again, that's not the actor's fault. It's the director's fault. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's the director's fault. It's probably not even her fault. It's a direction, you know, it's a different direction. It was worth exploring, I guess, for them. They found something in it. Like, I get why they picked him, because he's very precocious Mm. for his age. But I still felt like he was too old for the part. Ah. And he's never humble. He's never quiet. He's always just putting Meg down or telling people that he knows things that they don't know. It's like, well, people don't like that. (laughs) Right. 
And I thought you were supposed to not, in the book, he's supposed to, right? It's in the book, right? That he's not supposed to be, he doesn't talk to other people. Right. He's very antisocial, even more than Meg. Right. Who's also pretty antisocial. But we don't see that. Where was that? (laughs) Good point. He wasn't afraid to talk back to the, well, not like talk back to the teachers. The teachers were offending his family and he sort of shouts at them right away at the beginning of the movie. Which is uncharacteristic. Yeah. And from that point on, it was kind of like, oh, okay. Like I kind of thought his, his change would be humbled by this experience. And it didn't it was the opposite it was just more for his ego and i don't really care for that whereas in of course the tv version that was like ideal that was like the best version i've ever i mean i've only seen three versions but (laughs) no i mean out of the three right that's the most memorable because there's a character arc there he goes through a change yeah him being this brilliant selected being in the cosmos and everybody's predicting him to be the savior even though he doesn't save the day he goes through a change that's needed so maybe he could be a savior later you know there's potential there well and in the tv version it's the only one where i actually believed that he needed meg and the other ones i didn't believe i guess we're talking about relationships sorry (laughs) that's good but we talked about meg so that counts exactly Like he, yeah, that's the only version where Meg actually appeared to be needed by him. And it was one of the only versions that actually felt like the story was about Meg, which I thought all were supposed to be about Meg, but that's not how it comes across. I don't know. Even in the book, sometimes it, like they talked about Charles Wallace so much. So much. Yeah, no, no, she was overshadowed. And you're right, the 90s version, the TV version, it's not switching up what Charles Wallace is at all. They actually talk blatantly that he's, you know, this very intelligent, foreshadowed savior. But it's all through what Meg is telling them. I mean, she's saying that, no, he's also an eight-year-old boy and my brother. That makes me responsible for him no matter what you think he is. And that's the first time we've seen that confidence in her. Like, she knows exactly what needs to be done with her brother and that's something nobody else knows yeah well we also see him bullied and that's some that's a huge piece of it like and he's younger which i think helps a lot but we don't see the other charles wallace have any interactions with people so it doesn't really set up anything emotionally for the storyline like i get that he's antisocial, but like what does that look like when he's in a social situation right that's what we need to know so we know where to go and that was the only one that did that. And that was awesome because it was like a bunch of like little boys trying to like pick on him. And Meg is there and she's just like, what the hell? Like, what are you guys doing? Like, get out of here. And that was great. It was like another instance of like, yeah, he is smart, but he doesn't have self-control because he's like so young. And he doesn't know how to, I guess it's similar, but he doesn't know how to make well-informed decisions. He needs Meg there to protect him in some ways. I mean, I think if this were like a fiction story and not fantasy sci-fi, the stakes would be so different that it'd be like, okay, maybe this is your parents' job. Right. You know, but because they're going on this journey and it's just them and like some guy they pick up, we'll get to that. (laughs) It makes a lot more sense that she feels protective. The interpretations of Charles Wallace when we come to the it figure on the planet of Kamazots. There's an interaction there in all three versions where it actually takes over Charles Wallace. He's yeah. he's taken by the darkness in, in a way. In all three versions, there's ways that's done. 
And I think the 2018 version was Laughable. kind of forgotten or I don't know. There was no test there for Charles Wallace in, in the latest version. It just sort of happened. It was really dumb. Yeah. There was no test, right, of his anything like he has some food that's it yeah i mean this idea of temptation by a devil figure we talked about this in the last episode there's a lot of depth to that how do you react when you're tempted by the devil and charles wallace didn't pass in any version but this latest movie didn't even have the trial it it sort of just bypassed that and says now you're taken because it's good for the plot i don't even know why and the trial is like the most important part of that almost as much as the decision itself but like you said there was no decision in this version exactly which is very unfulfilling to watch yeah and it makes meg's triumph later when she saves her brother essentially less potent and like well this is just a sidebar but because it makes it less potent i think it also like didn't help that he doesn't give a shit about meg yeah. In the 2018 version. Like, he does, but only in a demeaning sort of way. Yeah, exactly. Or coddling. And I'm like, I don't need to be coddled by an eight-year-old. Thank you very much. <laughs> and they put him in the position of villain in the 2018 version. Yeah. It, literally, the actor who is Charles Wallace is cast as the it, mm-hmm. as the dark figure throughout the climax. second half. The, the climax, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's him being the evil figure and talking as the evil figure. Which is awesome. It's a great idea. But it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. If his character was built differently in this version, I think that would have been sort of scary and intimidating. But yeah. it was also just annoying, you know? I don't... Yeah. He didn't, there was no, there was no difference <laughs> between the two, except that he was more blatant about the way that he feels about Meg. And that's not enough. Like in the TV version, we see a completely different Charles Wallace. We see this like really cute, smart kid being influenced by an older creepy man which hello that's like all of history and then him being taken over to some degree and what meg has to do to kind of wake him up to that exactly it's so much more fulfilling than whatever was happening in the 2018 version and the tv version there was also more struggle i feel like charles wallace was I mean, he understood that he needed to stay with the group. He understood that if he gave in, that the darkness would take over. But he also understood that he really wanted to see his father. Like, that was his motivation. And it was a motivation of an eight-year-old. Right. That felt real. So even when he decided, like, yeah, I I need to know where dad is, so I'm going to be vulnerable to the darkness. Is that what the motivation was in the 2018 version? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, there wasn't really much of a motivation because the 2018 version, he's adopted. He doesn't even know his dad. He's there because of Meg. Weird. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Maybe that's another reason why there was no, like, trial, quote-unquote trial for Charles Willis there. They're like, well, we wrote ourselves into a wall, yeah. so we're just gonna take a escape for free card. What is that called? You know what I mean. Sure, I know <laughs> what you mean. I hope, I hope they do. Get out of jail free card. Yeah, get out of jail free card. There it is. <laughs> Except it's not free because it suffers. The story suffers and then the audience suffers because you don't feel the catharsis at the end as much as you could. I, when I, okay, so when I first saw, the first introduction to All Wrinkle in Time was the 2018 film and I really liked it when I saw it and I was really surprised that people weren't talking about it and I still like it for what it is, but then reading the book and seeing the TV version, I understand why people didn't like it. But I also do not understand why people like the book. (laughs) That's still completely, (laughs) I don't understand it. Uh, Again, maybe the impact of its time has a lot to do with it. But there are people our age that like really like it. And I don't, 
I don't understand why. <laughs> totally. And, you know, there hasn't been anything like exactly it. like it written since then either. That's so fair. The things that we would want to improve on it, I feel like, could make a big impact. If you really love this book, please tell me why. <laughs> Reach out. Because I want to understand. Like, I'm not being, like, facetious or just, like, going to laugh in your face. Like, I really genuinely want to know, like, what is drawing people in. Because I don't get it. That's okay. Moving right along. <laughs> The next on my list is... Boyfriend? Oh, boyfriend. Kelvin. Gosh, I hope that's not what he is in all the boys. <laughs> he is fantastic in the TV movie. Mediocre in the 2018 version and <sighs> disturbing in the book, I feel. Done. Next character. <laughs> I tend to agree with all of those versions. All of what you just said. I agree with everything <laughs> you've just said about Kelvin. O'Keefe is his last name. I think as a necessary tool in the plot he did well with communication i think that was his thing right is that he was able to communicate well yeah and in the in the book even though he does act very much like this teenager basketball star that i didn't mind but that makes him very entitled which Mm. again is sort of typical for the time and for that type of person yeah but when we did talk about his unique attributes like communication and and caring deeply about this family he just met i thought that was sort of intriguing because it's new it's a new thing to add for a character like him definitely and you're right the tv version did super well with that if anything it did better (laughs) i character i would say like one of the things i liked about the book version calvin is that he looked different as well he wasn't written like the same old boy that you always see like the white boy white skinny boy who every girl falls in love with in the 13 year old world you know what i mean yeah like he looked different and i think because of that i also like expected more from him (laughs) which was my fault that was my bad because he he doesn't stand up to scrutiny very well once you get deeper into it it could have been better right and he is written as the supportive ally He's an instant big brother to Charles Wallace. In the book, yeah, he comes on super strong to Meg. And actually, I would say the 2018 version did that too, where it was like this this child love right away. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you don't, I mean, I, I think that's cute. And that's it's nice to be supportive in that way, especially when Meg is uncomfortable in who she is to start with. It's nice to have someone who like points out all of your good attributes and says, actually, you're very likable because totally. of those things. Totally. And it's not from your little brother. It's from someone who... Outside. Yeah, outside of your family and who wasn't a friend prior to this adventure. What was my point about that? I Um, agree with all of those things. Good. (laughs) No, really, what was my point? That type of ally, quote-unquote boyfriend, archetype, is kind of intriguing for the situation that we're in. And because Meg is the main character, she's getting support from a male character. I mean, you know, in in the best version, which is the 90s version, I would say it's like the best sort of support. Yes, That is something that's unique, and I really liked seeing it on screen, and I wish it were in more books, too, because that was really refreshing, that he he doesn't overshadow her at any point, and that happens a a lot in the book, and it happens a few times in the movie, in the 2018 movie, but in the TV version, he's very supportive, very much in the ally role, and I was expecting the opposite, (laughs) because it's the 90s, and I was like, you know, he's going to be like... It's all about him. 
and he doesn't do that. He, like, respects her space and is, like, like you said, like, supportive, but, like, not in her face about it. Yeah, he's very subtle. That's the other thing is he's subtle when it comes to him liking her. Yeah. And even in – this is the only version where – well, actually, I guess the 2018 version never went too far either. The 90s version, there was this moment where in the book – how does it explain it? He, like, pulls Megan to him roughly and kisses her. He, like, yanks her forward. I'm yeah. like, dude <laughs> – Girls love that, by the way. <laughs> She's about to go off by herself to save her brother in this moment. And, you know, I mean, it's it's like the romantic notion that's been used a million times. Let me kiss you before you might go to your death sort of thing. But in the 90s version, he's super chill about it. He doesn't, yeah. he like whispers in her ear, like, hey, don't die. But also, I would like to kiss you, but your dad's right here. So I'm not going to. And I'm like, ah, yes. To say in that moment, so sweet. And then her face was just like, "Oh my gosh, yes. I love him so much." Yes, that was perfect. That's how you build tension, first of all, and second of all, like they made that gesture work where I wouldn't expect it to be used at all. The idea with the male protagonist and the female in the girlfriend role—that's very much like a male thing to pull the woman in, kiss her, and be like, "I'm gonna go off to die now." Right. Like, I don't expect women to do the same thing, I guess. Like, I wouldn't expect a woman to do that with her boyfriend before she's going to go kill herself, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I didn't really expect that to work anyway in any of the versions. And the fact that they were able to make that work and also make it less uncomfortable with, like, yanking somebody around, I thought that was really sweet because you still get that moment of going off to battle yeah and the roles are switched yes and she's not losing any power in the fact that he starts that conversation exactly because it's it's more of like a i'm your ally and i i need you to not die yeah this is kind of like a big plea in that sense it's not like let me just kiss you roughly sort of (laughs) what i want before i go off to war not strategy thinking or (laughs) say goodbye to my father and then leave no it's kiss my boyfriend real quick right Hop off and be super happy. Right. I don't understand that, but... And that scene actually, to be fair, didn't exist in the 2018 version. Thank um, Because it was rewritten differently. They didn't really have a moment that, like that. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think if anything to say about the 2018 version of Calvin. He's so cute. That's all I have to say. Like, he was such, fine. He's such a pretty little boy. I don't even know what to say, you know? He's a pretty little boy. I don't, you know. He was nice. He He did his best. Like, the character in that situation. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It was fine. Well acted. Yeah. I wasn't like, oh my god, but I also wasn't, like, angry. His backstory was changed a little bit in the Mm. 2018 version. Oh, yeah. He didn't have a big family, which was typical in the other versions. Yeah. He had a father who expected too much of him. It didn't have anything to do with sports, but I think it had a lot to do with academic achievement. That was a bit of a change, and that was was his insecurity in that version. What did you think? That's interesting. I don't know that I see why it was changed. I thought the TV version did that. Like, that hit me when they did that scene. I was like, god damn, you guys went for it at Disney. But in the 2018 version, yeah, like, I I get it. It's further removed emotionally. And I think that was probably because it's Disney now. (laughs) But also maybe because they felt that was more relatable. But I think it really, like, took away this, like, whole other, like, side of Calvin. No. Which I... is the verbal abuse. Yeah. I mean, his father is not, his father's yelling at him about his grades. Like, yes, that can be considered verbal abuse. But the scene we see in the TV version is, like, without a doubt 
verbal abuse. And I think that's something worth highlighting. So in the TV version, when all of the vulnerabilities of the kids are being shown by a character we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. called the happy medium, we see that Calvin's big family is sort of out of control and his mother is very much... I mean, the mother, I'm sure, is insecure too, but she's yelling her head off at the kids. And you can tell that Kelvin's in, I mean, he's not in this vision, but if we picture his daily life, he would be pretty traumatized by the fact that he has to father his own siblings and try to calm his mother down. And we don't even know where his father is in that version, you know? It just looks very tough. Yeah. And despite him having a good face and being so kind and gentle, he has to deal with all this stuff in his private life. So it's effective. Yeah, I for some reason I don't know why, because it wasn't this bad in the Hunger Games, but he reminds me of Peta ah, in the TV version. Well, that's a great connection. I don't know why though. <laughs> he just does. <laughs> He's like the son of a. Tell me, you tell me. No, I was just thinking. <laughs> I was like, oh, from what I remember in Hunger Games, Peta's mother was very abusive to him, and he had a lot of siblings. And was she? I don't remember. She's the one, I mean, this is the scene I remember. She's the one that, like, smacked him around when he burnt the bread. Right, right. I guess that's considered not good. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know if that was, like, a, like, thing that happened periodically or if that was, like, a one-off. But, yeah, usually abuse is not just a one-off, so. Who's next? I have the Mrs. W's, the most intriguing characters of all, and probably the most memorable when you think of A Wrinkle in Time. Yes. The three W's, which is, which is, get it, okay. Women, waffles, and wine. (laughs) As long as waffles are first. Yes, that's not how it goes, but yes. (laughs) Mrs. What's It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which, as in W-H-I-C-H, not W-I-T-C-H. Good uh, clarification. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Who's the first one we meet? Mrs. What's It? She's my favorite, especially the TV version. <laughs> oh my gosh, the TV version. Oh, that actor. Oh, and I wrote down her name. Did you? Because she's so good. She's amazing. Well, actually, in all the versions, Mrs. What's It is the first cosmic guide we meet. And she's she's sort of described as a transit, a little crazy. She's wearing all of these old clothes. And it looks like she might be begging for food when she enters the Murray's house. She shows up in the middle of the night, practically, in the middle of a storm. And the mother is like, who are you? And Charles Wallace is like, oh, she's my friend. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Hanging out with like a 35-year-old woman. Explain, please. I think that was the idea is that when you read the book, you can interpret that this might be a crazy lady that Charles Wallace met a few times. Yeah. (laughs) But then as the conversation continues, you see that she's highly intelligent, still kind of dorky. But when she talks to (laughs) Mrs. Murray, it's on business that is real, like tessering, for example. Yeah, she brings up the tesseract. And she sort of implies that there's a task that needs to be done. And she alludes to the father and like all of these weird things that Mrs. Murray is listening to on this crazy lady. (laughs) She's just, like, taking it in. Yeah, and it's a very interesting scene in the TV version. I think everything was well done because it was a stormy night and she had flown in as a crow. And she was a black woman. The actor's name, by the way. Mm -hmm. Alfre Woodard? Mm. Alfre Woodard? Is that her name? She was the only thing I know her from. She was in Scrooge as the secretary. I loved her in that. Wasn't there something else? She's in so much. Okay. She's in so much and she's fantastic in 
all of it. Yeah. I even kind of wanted her now to be in the 2018 version. Yeah, that would have been so cool. Oh my gosh. Uh, but yeah, the actor is the bomb. Uh, she does that role so well because she can be both crazy but uh, immensely loving towards the kids. And so sweet oh. and like hilarious. Yeah. How can you do, like, how can you be all those things? I don't that's, know. It's fantastic. She's truly magical. And that's what the Mrs. W's are about, is being magical stars. So. Yes, yes. And she's like, she has emotional depth in the TV version. It's great. Okay, well, then on that note, uh, the book <laughs> version, what did you think of, if there's anything to add about that? Yeah. Not really. I mean, I don't know. It was fine. The 2018 version was kind of disappointing, unfortunately. That was not Nicole Kidman. <laughs> Uh, Reese Witherspoon? Yeah, Witherspoon. Like, I like Reese Witherspoon, but she came in like Glinda. That doesn't... Why would she be stealing clothing from people, which is something they talk about, or sheets, or whatever it is, if she's like... She just reminded me of a Karen. The prettiness of her, of all of the W's in the 2018 version, it felt like a costume party. Which, again, it's not... That's not bad. But if you know the story, that sort of contradicts what they were supposed to look like and make you feel like. Yeah. Witherspoon is very pretty. She's dressed all in white when we first see her with the lots of makeup on, sparkling. sparkling. Yeah, <laughs> so, so many sparkles. Oh my God, so distracting. And she's very carefree, innocent, to the point where she doesn't think the kids can do this task. She's very much the truth-sayer in that version, where she points out all truths, even though it's very unkind and unwarranted, I think. Yeah, and unhelpful and doesn't change anything. Yeah. We get a lot of that from the TV version, too. That Mrs. What's-It does a lot of truth-saying as well, but it's in a completely different way. Yeah. And it's from somebody who you feel, especially in the beginning, because you only see her as sort of this, like, rag woman. It's very, like, humbling, yeah, exactly. And like quiet. And Reese pops in and you're just like, okay, so what happened? How were you created? This is not how I imagined stars to be. And it makes her sort of disconnected from the other characters. It's like she's in her own world. Can I actually read a quote of no. Mrs. Watson? <laughs> yes, go for it. From the book, because I thought this was a good summary of her energy. She's talking to Meg here. My child, do not despair. Do you think we would have brought you here if there was no hope? We are asking you to do a difficult thing, but we are confident that you can do it. Your father needs help. He needs courage. And for his children, he may be able to do what he cannot do for himself. So very encouraging, wise words. She's acting very much as their first and foremost guide. Right. Oh, and a big uh, aspect to her character later in the story is that when we come to gift giving from the three W's. The most important gift Mrs. What's It leaves Meg is love. Just don't forget you're loved. I love you. Yeah. That's going to be what saves you. Yeah. And it is the mentor's last words that save the hero. Nice. It's love. Oh, God. <laughs> In the TV version, I accepted that wholeheartedly. In the book, I was like, really? <laughs> what a concept. Never heard of that before. Like, it felt so flat. It did, strangely. Why? Why? Uh, but on the TV version, it's like, yes, love. That's the answer. Because <laughs> I it believe. Was, because she did it so well. We built up to this yeah. moment. That relationship was developed and we saw it grow. And so by the time she said, you can do this, yeah. we believed it. I think Meg believed it. Yeah. And it saved her then too. Totally. Mrs. Who? Yes. Yes. Who? She's the one who speaks with quotes only because... Her ability to communicate is somewhat limited. Right. And I think we're to understand that the older the star is, it's more difficult to communicate with 
uh, not like lesser beings or anything, <laughs> but non-stars know, with non-stars. Yeah, <laughs> which makes Mrs. Witch the most difficult to communicate with because she's the oldest star. Oh, that makes sense now. Right. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. Oh, you're welcome. Because like in the 2018 version, it's completely opposite to that. Right. I mean, like Mrs. Oprah. What's her name? <laughs> Mrs. Witch. Mrs. Witch. <laughs> Mrs. Oprah. <laughs> Mrs. Witch is the kind giant goddess. And she like lowers herself to like human size and like has like an amazing conversation with Meg, which I think is like the highlight of the movie about going into war, basically. But in the TV version, I guess I don't really recall the book a whole lot in terms of that. But in the TV version, she's very annoying on purpose. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, she's antagonizing and dismissive and very much an ice queen type. Which was a new a new interpretation, which I thought helped the plot in the TV version a lot. There was some antagonism between the W's there. She was the one doubting Meg. Right. Somehow that dynamic is better than one of the underling stars being so dismissive of Meg. Because, like, who the hell are you? You're not the all-being Oprah, you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) And then it was impactful when Meg changed her mind. Sort of stood up to the oldest star. That's kind of what it felt like in the TV version. And it was well done. Well acted and well played because it was literally Meg in her darkest moments convincing this oldest star that she needed to save her brother. Anyway, but we were talking about Mrs. Who, right? (laughs) She is played by Mindy Colling. Ah, yeah. In the 2018 version, which I thought was great. I, it makes me feel bad <laughs> that, well, maybe I shouldn't feel bad about that because I feel good about other decisions I've made. <laughs> I wish that that part in the 2018 version had been played by the one in the TV version. Like, I felt like that character type fit that role better. Mindy Calling oh. is very, like, serene and, like, kind of pulled back from everybody kind of like reserved and she is very like she has sage words for everybody like she's very removed whereas like in the tv version you have somebody who's a nerd with like really thick glasses who's very like quirky and kind of a spaz and that fits so much better with what the role is yes in my opinion because i i want to see really wise things come from somebody like that that's like the fool being becoming the wise man yes or wise woman and she does in the tv version there's even growth there and that's hard to do when your all your dialogue is quotes you know yeah on the end note for that character i really really love the idea of all quotes dialogue Mm. I think that's so fun. A lot of people would say that it was kind of annoying, but I laugh so much when I hear quotes from other people, especially when she says, who said it? We've talked about it. Like, she quotes everybody. There's, like, states people. There's religious people. In the in the 2018 version, they threw in, like, a music lyric, right? Oh, yeah. They do, like, pop lyrics. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm like, okay, whatever. I mean, lean into it. Enjoy. But it does sort of demonstrate her all-being power knowledge which is knowledge yes my point sorry <laughs> which is good no yes yes no no no. meaning yes thank you for completing my thought okay. because that's what makes her character intriguing to me right you know? i think i would want to be her if i had to be cast as one of the w's though um the only thing i was going to add was oprah winfrey being cast 
And you, you sort of started talking about it. What did you think about Oprah Winfrey? Loved it. Sorry. Awesome. <laughs> Why? Continue. Why did you love it? No, I, would, I, I agree. Why? She's already sort of like a powerful figure in society as it is. And over and around the world too, not just in American society. And it didn't feel like an ego thing. It didn't feel like she was very humble in it and very like earnest and all the things that she offered, we thought was really important, not only for like young black women to hear, but for young women everywhere. It didn't, but it didn't feel like preaching either. Yeah. It felt very like supportive. And if you are not feeling supported in your life right now, go watch that scene <laughs> because it made me feel really good. It was like, oh man, like I wish I had seen something like that when I was that age, you know? The only thing I would caution with that though, with that type of character, mm -hmm. the wise mentor, mm -hmm. there's no new lesson for her throughout the story. I totally agree. I don't know why I didn't need it. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. In this one. But I mean, I think that's valid. She's sort of playing the role of like subconscious or something like that. Like, oh yeah. But for some reason, I think in, in other films that would bother me, but in this one it didn't. I was like, cool. <laughs> Maybe I just needed to hear it. And she said it. And I was like, cool. You're good. You can go now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think in my head I had built her up. Because in the book, it's difficult for her to, to communicate at all. I think just that alone says a lot. The wisest of them can't communicate. And then in the TV version, going, like you said, in the opposite direction, which is she's the one doubting the most, even though she's sort of in charge of the whole operation. It's more like she's the general and she has to get things done. And she's like reluctant to trust the hero. Yeah, which gives her the arc, a character arc in the TV version, I think. There's some growth there to be done. But Oprah's great. I, Oprah's great. I, I always agree <laughs> with that. That's the lesson <laughs> to take away. <laughs> yeah. If anything, watch that scene where Oprah's encouraging Meg for that, or second Tesser. Actually, I think it's the second time they Tesser that she gives the, the big speech. Right? It is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The second time. Yeah. Because then they go into the cave. Right. Which is where somebody lives that we'll talk about. Is it time for that? Yeah. Let's talk about the happy <laughs> medium. also a star? Wait. I have no idea. <laughs> now I can't remember. I didn't actually write notes about the happy medium, which is too bad because he, she is a very intriguing character. <laughs> it's one that sticks out because it has a name and I mean, the role has a name and it does seem to play out to some degree in all of the stories. I do have to say my favorite version of the happy medium is the 2018 version played by Zach Galifianakis, who I do not really like. But in this role, I really liked him because he was kind of bumbling and bitter. <laughs> Interesting. And yeah. I kind of liked that about because it's a different direction, right? But in the other versions, the happy medium is sort of uh, androgynous. They, you don't really know if they're female, if they're male or like other. And they have like a crystal ball and they like watch things in it like any medium does because that's how mediumisms work. <laughs> And they go in and seek the happy medium's advice. And the happy medium's very, which is, I think, the irony of her title, his, her title. In the book version, he, she is very animated. He, she's either really happy or really upset by things. Because they even say, like, don't upset the medium because he, she will react, you know, immediately. And he, she's really not wanting to show them the darkness when Mrs. Witch sort of commands it. And I don't know. It's so. I think it's funny to read it in the book yeah. version. It's an interesting interaction. It is. But it's also like, here are all your answers. You know, you need to know all these things before proceeding with the plot. Right. 
And I think all three versions do something like that where yeah. they give information that's vital for the plot. I think maybe that's why I like the third one the most. It felt like the most work to get that information. I feel like I got to see more of Meg's struggle in a good way in the 2018 version. Yeah. I'm trying to think the TV version was also played by a male. Interesting. Yeah, they were all male in movie versions. Yeah, that makes sense. We default to male usually. Patriarchy. (laughs) It's alive and well. (laughs) Go fight it. But in the TV version... He looked very feminine. They made him look very feminine and act feminine and speak feminine. So maybe that that was a happy medium. <laughs> you know, my favorite women are actually men. <laughs> That's not true. That. <laughs> I mean, I guess my point is it could have been worse. It could have totally. It could have been way worse than it was. And considering like you said the times and everything like i think it was handled very well and leaving it in in the book form is so much easier you really don't have that influence i think there's been like star trek episodes that i've seen where they really closely have made somebody look not one way or the other male or female but i think that's really hard to do on film without it being distracting but if somebody can or if somebody has seen that i want to see it so let me know what it is (laughs) absolutely yeah so mrs murray like we said is not really in it other than the beginning and end scenes i mean i guess i really only liked her in the tv version Because she actually was doing things and seemed engaged with her children and was also worried about her husband, but like trying to bear the brunt of all the things that were happening. Like she felt real and not just like some cardboard cutout. In the 2018 version, uh, I love the role. Like I love the character. It's just too bad that it didn't matter. But she's a scientist, right? She's a... uh, microbiologist microbiologist and a black woman which is always nice to see totally that's about it (laughs) (laughs) well i like you said that because this version goes so quickly and there's not a lot of space for a mother character at the beginning or the end actually i thought the actor played those emotional scenes her reacting to meg's missing her father and then her reunion with the father at the end yeah just so well acted But again, you're right. It's not as memorable as the TV version. We see her struggling with the situation. Ah, yeah. And we don't see that with her. We can infer it, and maybe it doesn't matter, but it seems to enrich the story as a whole to be able to get a little bit of a window into what she's going through. Yes. And then there's the book. Moving right along. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Like we said, it could have been worse. It could have been worse. And every other way, she's really unbelievable. I wonder if Langle had problems with her mother. Let's psychoanalyze her Freudian style. Very interesting. Never do that. That's not a good idea. (laughs) Jungian style. It's better. It's better. It's better. Modern style. (laughs) (laughs) And then we don't actually get a reunion in the book. Actually, I think she... I think there is a moment, isn't there? It's like super brief if there is. Like they literally end up home and then it ends. Yeah. So if it is, it's like. Instant. Yeah. And then there's the father who has a much more active role. Who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> father who's active? No. In their child lives? No. He is played by Chris Evans? Pine. 
Chris Pine. There's like <laughs> five phrases. Chris Pine is the father in the 2018 he version. He did really well in that. Oh, and he, he gets some so... gray hair in his beard. I was like really proud of him. And he like, he sold it. Oh, like on his, his love for his daughter and for his son who he never got to meet. He played, he cried a lot, which I thought was good. Very vulnerable, emotional. Yeah. He does feel a lot of guilt because he kind of abandoned his family. I mean, it's don't yeah. get me wrong. It was scientific progress and he dedicated his life to it. So but, did his wife. Just yeah. Saying. No, for sure. <laughs> and that's that's brought up a lot, too, is that yeah. it was both him and his wife who discovered tessering. And he's the one that actually did it. Thanks. I know. But it's nice to see the male. What do you call when you're when you're in charge of your family? The head of the family? The patriarch. Oh, gotcha. It's fascinating to see the patriarch not only feel guilty, but feel remorse and yeah. show remorse for what they've done. Very true. And I think all three, I mean, the original and then the two movies did that really well to see that he felt so responsible for what was happening to his kids. Yeah. Almost losing them and then not being able to save them is even worse. I agree. I, I still think that the TV version did it best. Because he was, like, broken. Physically as well as mentally. But to see that, I just really like some of the choices they made for that for that version. Because giving him a broken leg really did come into play in really good ways. It wasn't even like, oh, well, he's injured, so he can't go do it. Like, it wasn't even about that. But it was the fact that he was so broken and that Meg had to sort of come to understand right like individuation that her parents are not godlike that they can be hurt and they're not perfect and i believed it hardcore in in the tv version and then in the 2018 version that moment where the father makes the choice to leave charles wallace behind yeah it was important in the book because we have this sort of reset scene on a different planet where meg has that realization that oh my gosh my father made a huge mistake I see that he's broken about it, but, like, how can he do this? And there's a lot of time to sort of process that. But in the 2018 version, it's literally, like, a, a second's worth of a choice to save his daughter versus his son, who he doesn't actually really know all that much. That was played, like, emotionally so well. Yeah. And if anything, that movie's worth it just to see that moment of yeah. that choice sort of either breaks your family apart or brings it together. Plus, it was just shot really well. Yeah. That whole scene was really, they were smart about it. Because it was really simple what was happening, but so, like, metaphorical that you're just like, oh, my God. Right? <laughs> oh, it was profound. But I do like in the book and the TV version where there is a whole, what do they call it, respite? And when you're doing a sword fight, like, you get a break because right. you need to deconstruct what just happened. And the choice of Mr. Murray leaving his son is sort of talked about in these scenes. They're in a planet. I don't even remember what the planet's called, but this is where we meet Aunt B. Right. Aunt, Aunt Beast. Beast. <laughs> Aunt Beast. And, you know, we get all these new perspectives of family and strength and courage to get Charles Wallace back and who must go save Charles Wallace. So it's like the calm before the storm, the beat before you forge into action. I mean, it's a really important moment to hit in a story. And I like how they did it. Yes. The only thing that confused me in the original book and and well actually the tv didn't even version didn't get into it at all christian influence that didn't i don't know i mean i don't know i don't know about it it wasn't distracting to me because i think i just learned to sort of read over it for better or worse because the father was a scientist and there's more talk about his project and 
the testing of the tessering. Testing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Continue. Then he's described as a very intellectual man mm-hmm. who's forward thinking and likes likes to teach his children to think things out. And he practices the periodic table with them. Like all of these great aspects to this father. Mm-hmm. And then there's this moment where he's admitting to Meg and to Mrs. Beast that he's not a cosmic guide like Mrs. Witch or who or what's it. He's just a man who's made a mistake for his family, right? (laughs) But he mentions God in that moment that, you know, we're all just trying to do work for God. And I was like, okay, you could have stopped at you have faults as a man of the family. You know, I believe that part. But it's all it felt like he was sort of throwing the guilt to something bigger than him. Yeah. And I'm like, but you're a scientist. Like everything you said so far has been from a scientist's perspective. And if that wasn't always the case, then let's see it earlier. Yes, exactly. Let's see both that dichotomy earlier so that that makes sense. He can still be a scientist and be profound and loving. Of course. But when we sort of push it to a level of religion, it felt disconnected, like you said in the previous episode. Yeah. Yeah. It was my only problem. I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) How dare you bring religion up? We never talk about it. (laughs) Especially me. (laughs) No, I think it's very true. Hmm. Okay, cool, cool. I call him the red-eyed man. <laughs> Great. He's, he's supposed to be the embodiment of the dark it. And he is telepathic when he's on the planet of Kamazots. And he's located at the center in the headquarters of the planet. Like, the planet's very much socialist, like central, we said. Central, central. Central, central. You're right. But he knows, I think he knows what's going on throughout the whole planet. He's very much everywhere at the same time. But when he meets the kids, he needs to have a physical form, I guess. And it's in the form of a red-eyed man. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Take it away, Jen. Yes. (laughs) In the movie, he's played by Michael Pena, which I thought was really awesome and great. It's just too bad that there was absolutely no, nothing for him to do. But he's a Scientologist, so he gets what's coming. I don't know if that's true. Sorry. In the TV version, again, like, I felt like that was a much better embodiment of evil. Yes. (laughs) To have, like, a white guy (laughs) in, like, a building that looks like a bank with a bunch of people in suits trying to all be the same. I was like, yeah, this this makes sense to me. Yeah. Being on a beach with Michael Pena does not feel like evil. (laughs) And at that point, we want to get the sense of darkness because we're building up. It's not premature. And we know he's very much in control in the TV version. Yes. There's this, you know, what he says goes. His sinister temptations start immediately. Yeah. Like he's trying to get into the heads of the kids right away. Yeah. Whereas you're right, the Pena version, he's literally a puppet in the 2018 version. Literally, which is horrifying, by the way, but yeah. (laughs) Meaning he's not the all-being. He's not the darkness. He's just the puppet of the darkness. There's very little for him to do, which is why we don't actually see him all that much. What, maybe he's on screen for five minutes. I just like his suit. He's in a really loud suit, and I love it. But yeah, then he's like instantly gone. He like falls apart as a puppet. Which insinuates that he wasn't needed or necessary. Nope. (laughs) But yeah, when you're comparing it to the TV version where he has a huge role as the devil tempter in every stage. And, and he's and, effective. And in control of Charles Wallace. Yeah. And like he he's very insidious with what he says to Meg. Like it, it almost feels like the abusive cycle where it's like really horrible things to say about her to her. And then all of a sudden it's like, but you can like let go. 
you can just come with me and not feel that anymore. Like, you don't have to feel this way. And it's like, yes, that is exactly how I imagine evil works. Exactly. It's insidious and it just, like, seeps in. And before you know it, you're like, I'm happy because I'm not feeling anymore and I've lost my soul. Exactly. And now that you say that, all the quotes he said came, I think, from the book. Because I remember in the book he was saying things like, if you give in, you're going to be happy because we're all one mind. Yeah. You're not different. There's nothing, you know, Meg's biggest fear is being too different. Right. And he's saying that here that won't happen. Everybody's the same. And yeah. you don't have to think for yourselves. And like everything is tempting. Yeah. The order of how all of that's done, however, is very different in all these versions. Yes. I don't know if any of them are better or worse, but. And, and where they take place is a little bit different. I don't know why they didn't go with that same idea in the 2018 version of, like, this bank-like building. It's very Brazil, if you've ever seen Terry Gilliam's Brazil. They think that's still very much alive. Corporations still have that sort of feel to them in suburbs and things like that. And they, like, they touch on the suburbs. But they don't go for, like, the thing that I think is pretty big symbol of conforming. Of ah. Conformption? <laughs> Conformity. Conformity. I went to college, you know. <laughs> we just autocorrectly. <laughs> but yeah, like I was really surprised that they didn't go with that. They went kind of with the nondescript building, but that doesn't work in terms of visual symbolism because that doesn't evoke anything. So it's kind of neutral. So I feel neutral. Agreed. Whereas, yeah, in the TV movie, you have this bank-like building, which to me is immediately like, ugh. You know, it's like waiting in lines and like paperwork, paperwork and and people kind of droning on. It's very just soul sucking. That works because then you see like we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but you see children being like hooked up to like these like electric things. And like you see some of the rooms as you pass through and you're like, oh, okay, this is really an evil building. Yeah. If anything, I sort of imagine Which is probably not true, but I imagine the Soviet Union having very similar underground tunnels where these experiments are being done, but it's for the betterment of the whole community. Exactly. You think of all these different situations where evil like that has occurred. Um, Bunkers and Nazis and like Soviet Union when they were having fun. Even in Japan and China. and It's very like human and you connect with that. And you don't connect with, like, a nondescript room in a nondescript location. Or you go a little bit too disnified with it. When it gets to the it itself in the 2018 version, it literally looks like the inside of a black brain. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing neurons zapping around, but it's very slithery and root-like. and mm-hmm. But it, it looks very disnified. It looks almost too magical. And it, you're right, that puts your mind in a different level than concentration camps you know it insinuates something very different yes and i think the tv version was so scary because we can fill in the blanks by what they're showing us Uh, like you said which are all historically real things like when you talk about it it makes it sound like the 2018 version is really cool and it is but it reminded me of like maleficent like you were saying like it's very disney and not very believable and we've had this discussion privately many times about disney And what it's sort of transitioned into since the 90s. And the storytelling aspects that have, like, really fallen short to what it 
could do. There's no, I mean, you know, when I watched, if I had seen A Wrinkle in Time as a kid, I wouldn't understand all of the implications, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't, like, feel that still. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. <laughs> do I've said this thousands of times. It has to do with trust of your audience. I, I don't know how else to put it. It's like not everything is just one layer, and that's how it feels a lot of the time. The Red-Eyed Man is more scary and sinister and compelling in the tv version because he has all of that behind yeah the dark energy and again charles wallace is so cute in that one and like humble and like quiet and nervous that you really do kind of feel how meg feels you're worried about him and you're trying to protect him while also trying to like face your own demons literally facing a form of a demon it, it has a lot more girth girth behind it yeah cojones <laughs> or that <laughs> huevos <laughs> and then in case you didn't insinuate from what we just said meg does defeat the red-eyed man she does spoiler alert oh my gosh i'm so sorry <laughs> i should have said that first spoiler yeah Ooh, i mean wouldn't that suck if she didn't but yeah and it, it's sort of the process of waking charles wallace up by her statement of love all three versions, I think, do this, which is that the last word she has is, I love you, Charles Wallace. Right. And it brings him back. So I'm glad that was consistent, that that yeah. thematic lesson stayed there throughout. The well, I was going to say, like, we should talk about the little end portions because I need to talk about them. Yes, yes. Let's talk about the end of the story. Yes. Or the lack of the end of the story. <laughs> so we, like I said, I stopped reading the book and then we watched the TV version. And in the end... Meg saves the day, right? And then they end up back at home and everybody's there and she like goes into the house and her mom is there and like she brings her father in and everything's like working out, you know? And then obviously, I mean, not obviously, like you get the weird feeling that that was too easy. Something's up here. Something's up. She like confronts it and then she like is back where she started with the dude, the red-eyed dude. And it's, you know, like a false win, which excellent. Oh. Part of the temptations to actually visually see your success before it happens. Yes. <gasps> That's messing with the brain. Really, because it's not... It, the confrontation that happens in the 2018 version is her confronting another version of her. And that did not work. I mean, I understood it, but it didn't work. Because at that point, she already kind of... Like, the, the version that she saw of herself was, like, conformed. But pretty and like made up and popular, popular, and that didn't play out enough before to make me think that that's what she actually wanted. So it just fell short. But in this one, in the TV one, he shows her exactly what she wants, which is to be home with everybody there, and it works because then she's like, "This is not real," and then it's like, "Oh, it's not real," and then she goes into her main battle, right? So then after that, I went back to the book and I was like, "Okay." I know the ending. I know what's going to happen. That's going to help me power through. Stupid book, man. She gets home and you're like, okay, sure, she's home. And then it ends. And she's actually like home. And it was like the most anticlimactic thing I've ever read. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I think I even texted Charlotte. What's happening? Why? Where's the rest of the book? It lacked a catharsis because it ended so quickly like that. It just ends. Oh, and it's lack of falling action. That's what I mean. Oh, Sorry. wow. I'm no. very angry about this. You're right. You're right. There's no completion of her journey. No tying up of loose ends. Yeah, it's too bad that you watched 
the TV movie yeah, and is. then <laughs> went to read it because yeah. when I read it, it was more like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, it's too bad, you know. But I didn't have anything to measure it to because <laughs> I watched the movie afterwards. Right. So if anything, the movie was like, oh, that's so much better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels so much better and it felt earned and yeah. triumphant. And So would you say the, t- the TV version was the most cathartic ending then? Yeah. Yeah. The TV movie killed everything else because it's just so damn good. It set the bar very high. Yes. And it even improved the plot. See, I love it when this happens, when a movie can improve the book version by filling in things. And it's not like filling it in stupidly. It's not explaining things or describing things too much. It's filling it in where it fell short. Yeah. And it invokes new things. It sort of plays with relationships. All of that was done really well. It sounds like we're wrapping up, but before we do that, we should yeah, it does sound like that. We're not quite done. (laughs) We've only been talking for like two hours. Sorry. (laughs) One more character because Jen really likes this character. We need to talk about her. This is like literally okay, and the entire book. I don't know how long it is, but it's long. Only character in the entire book who is kind, besides Meg, is Aunt Beast. Tell us about Aunt Beast. In the act where Charles Wallace has just been taken by the darkness. Mr. Murray has tessered both Meg and Calvin to this planet because I think it's pretty close to Kamazots, maybe. That's why they end up there. And it's a planet of snow, but there are these highly intelligent, I don't I guess they're described as sort of fluffy creatures with tentacles. (laughs) So like a squid, but furry. That's like the best creature to be comforted by in this time of need, you know, before you're going into battle again. Your injuries need to be tended to. Your hopes need to be brought back up. Yeah. This is the best scenario for all of that to happen. And we meet a character who is even yes. more so. Aunt Beast is a character. I would consider her like a mentor ally. But she basically, yeah, like takes care of Meg in the TV. I'm trying to remember in the book. Like she does, doesn't she hold her in the book or is that just in the TV movie? In the book she holds her, yeah. Like she carries her moment. around and it's really nice. Because we're in the close perspective of Meg in the book, she's unconscious. Like, she's waking up from tessering, having been almost frozen to death. And then at the same time, they're trying to communicate with a new species, which is really fascinating in the book, by the way. Totally. But the, that species is patient enough to do it. And Calvin is really good at explaining. Yeah, communication is his thing. Yeah. And when Meg not only starts to feel better, but starts to trust Aunt Beast, she's able to communicate a lot of her fears to yeah. her. And Aunt Beast is willing to listen and then sort of give the advice she needs to hear. Okay, in the TV version, Uh but do you want to mention something that was sort of distracting in the TV version? I don't know what you're talking about, distracting. Well, I think what happened was that a few years beforehand, shot like a bunch of like Bigfoot movies (laughs) or something. (laughs) They basically look like Wookiees, except friendly, and they had no eyes. Like their hair was in their faces or fur. They're kind of bear-like, and they just kind of, like, wobbled around like penguins, except they were furry. But despite that, I still felt that same way about Ant Beast as the char- that specific character, anyway. It's just, like, a completely, like, grounding character. Everybody else is, like, up in the stars, <laughs> or, like, too emotional to, like, you know, like, the father is kind of a mess. He doesn't have any connection to, like, being grounded, and I felt like she was, like, the grounding character and it desperately needed that and meg needed that and nobody was helping her with that they just kept like 
shaking her and telling her to like shut up and do it uh, that's what i got from the the missus anyway to some degree because there was a task and they had to get it done. But it's like, that's not super helpful if somebody is freaking out and and then has to go into war feeling like they can't do anything. Like, that's not an ideal thing to go into war with. That, that whole planet understands what's happening on Kamazots and the threat of the darkness. So they know the quest, but they are coming from a place where, you know, you can't, you can't do anything about it if you're internally not functioning and i think the species is very attuned to that which is a again a great choice as a respite before the big quest yeah and they even hold like a what seems like a war meeting yeah that where everybody chooses yeah chooses meg to be the one to go off and do it meg too also chooses herself to do it Um, which was really important too that whole scene is really important because that's not how the book played out and then just to point out, the 2018 again was very, uh, it's a very quick version of the plot. So there was, there was no scenes from this planet or with Ant Beast. There's a mention. <laughs> it was like a second long and you wouldn't even notice it unless you knew the words Ant Beast. But they do mention it. <laughs> and like you said, there's no, there's no buildup or preparation to the battle in the 2018 version. It's, it's sort of like she's thrown into it. Which has, it's like, I understand it. It, yeah, I think in the in the second one, I mean, in the TV version, that felt the most like an epic. Whereas the other two, like the film felt like a movie, which is fine. And the book felt like a short story, kind of. Like it didn't really have as high, and it didn't have as high highs and low of lows. You know what I mean? Like ah. there wasn't a whole lot of emotional difference. Would you recommend the book to somebody? Yes. One of the biggest reasons, which is how we started this segment, was that Ingle was one of the first to publish a book where there was a female main character, you know, a child female, in a genre that was until then very highly male-oriented, not only of characters, but targeted toward males, which was sci-fi, and that was golden age of sci-fi in the 60s. So to see this, (laughs) right, this book where it's a perspective from... A 13-year-old girl was a big deal. This book is important because of that, Yeah, if anything. I hear you. Yeah. So we will be back. I don't know. We're not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> follow us on Twitter. I don't really go on Twitter, but follow us if you want to. Absolutely. We're on Facebook. I would like to thank our patron. <laughs> patron? Patron. <laughs> Jesse, thank you very much. Thank you for being so supportive. We appreciate it. And you, you can email us if you want to. I don't know. I'm trying to like remember what. Rate and review us on iTunes, please. Charlotte is now going to entertain us with words of wisdom. Our exit quote comes from the book A Wrinkle in Time. This is actually Aunt Beast. Ha ha. Yeah. This is her words. And this is a moment where Meg is asking Aunt Beast who fights the evil. And Aunt B says that everybody plays a part. Um, everybody can fight in their own way. True. But she's asking, like, well, who helps you do that? And this is Aunt Beast's reply. Good helps us. The stars help us. Perhaps what you would call light helps us. Love helps us. Oh, my child, I cannot explain. This is something you just have to know or not know. 
We look not at the things which are what you would call seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 